KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Tuesday, September 19th. How the closure of the Pet West border crossing in San Isidro is affecting the local economy. That next, but first, let's do the headlines. It's almost fall and the National Weather Service says this week's weather will start to feel like it. Temps will be up to 10 degrees below average for this time of year in the county's coastal and desert areas and up to 20 degrees below normal in the valleys and mountains. Today, temperatures in the inland valleys are expected to be in the mid-70s. By the coast and in the mountains, it'll be in the high 60s. And in the county's deserts, it'll be in the mid-90s. Thursday is expected to be the coolest day with a chance of light rain. Today is National Voter Registration Day. It's a reminder to register to vote. Check your registration and get vote ready if you haven't already. Election Day is coming up on November 7th. The races in the county include filling the vacant District 4 seat on the county's Board of Supervisors, filling the vacant seat for Chula Vista City Attorney and the Fallbrook Public Utility and Rainbow Municipal Water District's detachment measure. Go to kpbs.org vote for more info. Two local universities made it on Forbes' list of the top 25 public colleges. UCSD ranked number three in the country and SDSU ranked number 16. Forbes originally ranked the best 500 public and private colleges in the country in its 2023 America's Top Colleges list. Then the top 25 public schools were pulled from the list based on factors that included graduation rate, alumni salary data, and student debt. Coming up, San Diego's business leaders are worried that closing a pedestrian border crossing in San Isidro will exacerbate an already bad situation for businesses in the border region. We can talk numbers, but it's a huge setback, and it's honestly not only a challenge, but it's a threat to our economy. More on that story just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Late last week, Customs and Border Protection abruptly closed the Pet West border crossing in San Isidro, and it remained closed through the weekend. Business leaders told border reporter Gustavo Solis that the closure threatens businesses that are already suffering. Jason Wells can't tell you how he really feels about the current status of the Pet West border crossing in San Isidro, at least not on public radio. Frustrated is, is probably the, the strongest term I could say in front of the camera, but certainly not the term we would say amongst each other. Customs and Border Protection closed the pedestrian crossing last week. They cited an unexpected rise in migration and limited resources. That crossing was part of a $741 million expansion to the San Ysidro Port of Entry, completed in 2016. Wells says it's frustrating to see that investment be so underutilized. Our ask is to use the facilities that we built. Um, the I don't want to hear about personnel. That was, you know, five years ago, Congress decided what was going to be given today and CBP, you know, based on CBP's application for, for personnel. Last week's closure was just another blow to San Isidro's business community that was hit especially hard by the pandemic shutdowns. 
CBP closed PetWest in April 2020, and it remained fully closed until this year. In January, CBP partially reopened the crossing, but only for northbound traffic between 6 a.m. and 2 p.m. As a result, pedestrian traffic through PetWest plummeted from 18,000 a day before the pandemic to 4,000 during the partial closure. We still see pedestrians waiting four to six hours. Um, we still have four to six hours as well in passenger vehicles sometimes. Kenya Samaripa is with the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce. She says border wait times are at an all-time high. The majority of people impacted by the closures are workers who live in Tijuana and commute to San Diego. They work in our region's hospitals, hotels, restaurants, nursing homes, schools. Samarriba says that they work throughout the county, from Chula Vista and Coronado to Sereno Valley, La Jolla and Del Mar. And this expands all the way to North County, so this is not a South Bay uh, issue. A 2021 report states that long border wait times are causing the San Diego and Tijuana region to lose about $3.4 billion in economic output every year. Without additional improvements to the region's port of entry, economic losses could grow to up to more than $5 billion. We can talk numbers, but it's a huge setback, and it's honestly not only a challenge, but it's a threat to our economy. Disruptions to cross-border commute have significant impact, says Joaquin Lucan from the Smart Border Coalition. Imagine a worker, if you're a business owner, having an employee come in to work with already with a half a shift waiting on foot just to get across. So it's, it's, it's unfathomable. It's just amazing, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the stress on the uh, binational workforce. In a statement, CBP says that it hopes to partially reopen PetWest as quick as possible, but did not provide a timeline. The agency promised to open as many lanes as possible in the Pet East pedestrian crossing to try to accommodate those who would normally cross using PetWest. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. California's decision to sue five major oil companies is welcome news for environmentalists. But the state isn't breaking new ground. Imperial Beach took legal action six years ago. Environment reporter Eric Anderson has details. San Diego's embattled coastal community of Imperial Beach joined Marin and San Mateo counties in 2017 in asking oil and coal companies for billions of dollars in property damage linked to climate change. Imperial Beach Mayor Paloma Aguirre says the city was already feeling the impacts of rising sea levels. We were surrounded by water. We have the estuary to the south, the Pacific coast to the west, and the bay to the north. And projections show that we are going to be severely impacted by sea level rise. The ongoing lawsuit argues greenhouse gas emissions caused sea level rise, which leads to coastal flooding, beach erosion, and the need to rebuild wastewater and stormwater systems. It also argues the fossil fuel industry misled the public willfully. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Coming up. A popular area to watch sea lions in La Jolla will not be reopening this fall. We'll have that story and more just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. San Diego organizers are training community members how to file complaints against police officers. Reporter Katie Heisen has more. Tasha Williamson taught herself how to file complaints against San Diego police. A police officer can take your life, take your freedom, change the trajectory of your household in one instance. And you don't think that the public should know their behaviors? She now trains others or files on their behalf. How many has she filed? <laughs> Maybe a hundred. She says the paper trail is vital. Complaints can add up to an officer getting fired or make it harder for them to get a job in other police departments. She says it puts pressure on officers to change their behavior. Williamson says it's important to file not just directly with the law enforcement agency, but also with their oversight commission and the state's police standards commission. Community members are finding their voices, they're tired. And part of complaining is the community standing up, fighting for itself. This year, the state commission gained the power to decertify officers for serious misconduct. They anticipate removing thousands of officers from the profession each year. Katie Heisen, KPBS News. An area of La Jolla popular for watching sea lions will not be reopening to the public this fall. Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says visitors will have to enjoy the animals from a distance. Point La Jolla is a rocky outcropping right next to La Jolla Cove, a perfect resting place for sea lions. But for years, city officials have been struggling to prevent people from getting too close to the animals. That can trigger aggressive behavior and can cause mother sea lions to abandon their offspring. The city had already closed Point La Jolla for the pupping season from May through October. Councilmember Joe LaCava said that worked. From May through October, the closure protected the public from sea lions minimized interactions and conflict and gave our rangers the enforcement tools they needed to let the public experience the wildlife and our coastal resources from a safe distance. The city is exploring adding more signage and gates and potentially setting up surveillance cameras to enforce the closure. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. Cinema junkie Beth Alcamando loves zombies. As proof of that, she is co-hosting a 14-hour horror marathon at the Comic-Con Museum on Saturday called The Secret Morgue Zombie Autopsy Edition. To add some insight into the zombie brain, she invited a paraneuroscientist to introduce the films. One of them is UCSD professor of cognitive science Bradley Wojtek. She interviewed him in 2014 when he had just published the book Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep? Here's Beth. So Bradley, you use zombies to help make neuroscience a little easier for the layperson to understand. But let me ask, when did you first kind of get the notion of combining the two? Unofficially, it was something that I came up with my collaborator, Tim Versteinen, who's a neuroscience professor at Carnegie Mellon. He and I did our PhDs together at UC Berkeley uh, in neuroscience. And we were both horror movie fans and we would uh, do these movie nights. And, you know, we'd get a couple of drinks and have a couple of beers. and. 
bunch of neuroscientists talking about zombie movies and inevitably turning to zombie brains. Uh, that's the unofficial version. The official version is I got a phone call from Matt Moak, who's the head of the Zombie Research Society back in 2010. Matt Moak was, at the time, doing a zombie blog, and he didn't want to call it Matt's zombie blog, he wanted to call it the Zombie Research Society, and started getting phone calls from press about the science behind zombies, and so he started reaching out to academics and scientists and clinicians to see if they wanted to help with his crazy project, and that's how it all happened. So did you find any science behind zombies? What kind of attracted you to them and, and made them something that you thought would be useful to you? Well, so there is actually a strange semi-real science about, you know, we call it zombies. Like there's a species of wasp, for example. They appear to be able to take over the brains and some behavior of insects, cockroaches or ants. And it's totally fascinating, the fact that you can have a fungus that can infect, for example, an ant. The fungus is called the cordyceps and actually features prominently in the video game The Last of Us, where the cordyceps fungus jumps into humans. And it, it changes the behavior of the ants. And so people call it uh, the zombie fungus. Uh, of course, there isn't really anything plausible that would, that would really do that in humans. But it makes for a very good way to connect strange real science with strange fiction in a way that people actually are interested in. So if I give a public lecture to a bunch of high school students or something like that, and I talk about the role that ongoing neural oscillations play in biasing uh, neuronal firing in order to affect perception and cognition, people's eyes glaze over by the third word. Whereas if I go into a classroom and I start talking about why do zombies crave human flesh? What in their brains might make them do this? then people actually pay attention. It's a trick, <laughs> but it seems to work and people like it. Now you actually tested out the zombie idea at a, like a trade show or an academic yeah. science fair. And, and how, did, how did that go? I mean, was that part, part like the first clue that you were onto something that was useful? Yeah, so every year there's this uh, annual Society for Neuroscience conference. It's an international conference. It's 35,000 neuroscientists from around the world attend. Think about your high school science fair where you've got your posters. Uh, except it's multi-million dollar, massively funded neuroscientific projects. And so you've got thousands of these posters up on the research floor simultaneously, and all of these PhDs and MDs walking around looking at the latest and greatest research. And uh, my buddy again, Tim and I, we decided to test this out there. And so we created a fake poster about the zombie brain, and we couched it in medical terms. So you wouldn't get it immediately, but if you started reading it, you would clearly see what we were on about. And we found an empty spot in the poster hall and just hung it up and waited to see what happened. And it kind of spread around the like neuroscience Twitter where graduate students were then tweeting each other and they're saying, you have to go see this poster at you know, aisle three, section eight. And people were, were pretending like it was a real amazing piece of breakthrough research. And so they're getting people over there. And we just sort of sat back and watched as people would kind of do this funny take when they realized what was happening. That made us realize it would work among grad students and things like that. But what really hit home for me that it would work among even the public was one of the security guard who was working at the conference center is standing over by this poster and sort of reading it and smiling and chuckling. And never once have I seen a security guard working at this conference reading a poster at the, you know, it's all scientific jargon, gobbledygook, right? But this guy was looking at it and, and laughing. And that was a very big moment for me thinking, okay, this actually might entice people who aren't scientists a little bit into this. And now you've 
taking these zombies into book form with <laughs> Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep. So what is this book actually about? We like to say it's a forensic neuroscientific approach to understanding the zombie, which is to say before we had brain imaging, brain scanning devices like we do right now, the way that we figured out anything really about how the brain worked in people was to look at when things went wrong. So the, the classic case is Roman gladiatorial times. There was a physician named Galen who worked with the gladiators and they would get stabbed a lot and injured a lot. And he would see, okay, if they got stabbed in the spinal cord, what happened? Okay, they'd be paralyzed, you know, from here on down or something like that. If they got a blood force trauma to this part of the brain, what would happen? And so that was, that was it. That's the only method that we had for 2,000 years uh, of linking behavior to the brain. And so we took a similar approach, except instead of having real people to make that inference on, we used zombies, by which I mean we've watched a lot of zombie movies, and said, okay, what are some of the zombie stereotypes? If I ask anybody to mimic a zombie, they would usually immediately just do that uh kind of thing. Uh, and they walk really slowly, unless they're a fast zombie, but there's the original Romero zombies were really slow, uncoordinated. And we say, okay, well, what do we know about how the brain coordinates movements? How is it that we are able to walk? How is it that we're able to talk? What do we know about this stuff? And then what can we infer about the zombie's brain based on how they behave? And so every chapter is a different symptom, walking, talking, but told from the perspective of zombie brains. But it's all modern neuroscience research and everything that we know about how these things happen. That was neuroscientist Bradley Wojtek speaking with KPBS cinema junkie Beth Accomando. Wojtek will be introducing zombie films and performing a brain dissection on Saturday for The Secret Morgue Zombie Autopsy Edition at the Comic-Con Museum. That's it for the podcast today. Join us again tomorrow for the day's top local stories. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great Tuesday. KPBS On Demand is supported by Maracal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, Maracal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.